0: We're in Philippians, it's in the New Testament, and uh, in it, a big theme of the book is joy. Uh, Paul's got this relationship with this church that he helped plant, and it's a relationship of great joy. Paul considers them his partners in the gospel, and he loves them, he finds joy in them, and they have sent him some kind of gift. He's in prison, and they've sent him a gift at great cost to uh, one of their brothers, and so he's sending him back this letter, hoping that it'll bring them joy as well. And here in this passage, here in this passage, Paul wants to protect their joy. And he does so by warning them not to have confidence in the flesh, but instead to put their confidence in Jesus Christ. Throughout this passage, it speaks of confidence in the flesh, and we'll unpack unpack what that means in a second. Um, but for starters, sometimes we use the word confidence to talk about uh, courage, assertiveness, or being sure about your own abilities or qualities. But the confidence that Paul is talking about is, is trust, it's faith, it's about who or what we believe in. What do we put our hope in to continue to live another day? What do we put our faith in to believe that what we do matters so for example I'm up here uh, and I'm preaching and I, I guess I have some confidence in the sense that um, I have confidence that I'm able to speak publicly without completely embarrassing myself I have confidence that I've prepared uh, a sermon that I've read the passage that I understand it that I've consulted commentaries printed out the manuscript I have practiced of course I have confidence in God that, that as I, I speak, that he'll help me, help me speak clearly, help me avoid fumbling over too many lines, and help you guys to, to understand what I'm saying. Um, that's one kind of confidence, but there's another question of confidence, which is, what is at the bottom of my heart that makes me do this? What Am I, am, am I doing this just out of hope that... Doing stuff at church makes God like me more. Am I doing this because my identity is uh, in what you guys think of me, or appearing to be a really good Christian? Do I think that doing this will get me into heaven? When I do this, or or, or when we do a- this, or anything else, what are we putting our confidence in? And so there's that confidence in the sense of uh, being sure of your abilities. Then there's confidence in the sense of trust and a faith, and and sometimes we mix the two up. Um, I think of the song, uh, I Have Confidence. It's from the musical The Sound of Music. If you don't know The Sound of Music, it's uh, this three-hour film adaptation of a Broadway musical. Half of it is a love story, the other half is about escaping from the Nazis, and somehow it's based on a true story. And in the beginning of the movie, uh, this nun, Maria, uh, she's uh, a little too wild for the convent. So she leaves to be a governess at this, uh, for this widower's uh, seven kids. So she's on her way to this uh, guy's house. And it's a musical, so she's singing and dancing um, through the streets, psyching herself up to take on this new task. And she sings the song, I Have Confidence, and half of, it's she's, half of the time she's talking about having confidence that she'll have the ability to take care of seven kids, but the other half of the time is sort of a religious statement of sorts. She sings, I have confidence in sunshine, I have confidence in rain, I have confidence that spring will come again. Besides what you see, I have confidence in me. It's kind of a manifesto for her pursuit of adventure. And in a sense, you know, even though this is a musical from the 60s, it sounds very familiar. This, this theme sounds very familiar to the message of at least the pop culture I grew up with. Self confidence, self esteem, believing in yourself. Now I don't know if Paul, well, Paul would think about musical the sound of music but we do know from this passage what he thinks about confidence about faith about what we ultimately put our trust in and for paul what we put our confidence in will determine whether or not we can truly rejoice for paul confidence in christ is the only road to true joy confidence in christ is the only road to true joy. That's really the message today. And and in this passage, I want to say three things as we look at verses 1 to 7. The first thing, point number one, guard your confidence in Jesus. Let's guard your confidence in Jesus. Point two, put your confidence in Jesus. Put your confidence in Jesus. And number three, Uh, Point three, reject confidence in the flesh. Reject confidence in the flesh. That's the roadmap to true joy. Guard your confidence in Jesus. Put your confidence in Jesus and reject confidence in the flesh. Let's start with point one. Before that, I'm just going to take a sip of water really quick. First point is guard your confidence in Jesus. This passage starts with this exhortation to to rejoice. Paul wants the Philippian church to rejoice in Jesus. Verse 1 says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. This is the subject of this next passage of of this letter. But to get to that joy, Paul needs to remind them of some important things. And so the rest of the verse says, To write the same things to you is of no trouble to me and is safe for you. To put this in the context of the New Testament about what he's about to say, the Apostle Paul in his letters deals with with a, a number of different theological controversies, but the one that clearly dominated his writings is the question about the role of the Mosaic Law, the Law of Moses, in our salvation. Paul was a missionary to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, and so originally the the Jerusalem church was was comprised of of, uh, Jewish believers, but when when many Gentiles began to become Christians and, and put their faith in Christ, almost immediately Paul needed to devote large amounts of time guarding the church from a group that's referred to in different ways in the New Testament. Today, we commonly refer to them them as Judaizers. And they're they're these uh, people who identified as Christian, but insisted that Christians must have a righteousness of their own from the law of Moses. They first appear, if you look in the book of Acts, chapter 15, it's after Paul's first missionary journey, Uh, Acts chapter 15, verse 1 says, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise, talking about uh, the the Gentile believers, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And this was the issue that pervades um, Paul's writings. Because Paul saw it as a gospel issue. It's the difference between Christianity and heresy. Paul wrote very harshly to the believers in Galatians uh, chapter 1. Writing to the church in Galatia, he said, I am astonished, in verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. For Paul, this... uh, This was not just a minute theological difference. This was a matter of life and death. This heresy attacked the heart of the gospel, that we are declared righteous by God, justified, that we are justified by grace alone through faith alone. And here in the book of Philippians, Paul says it's time to review the same things, the same material again. It's it's safe, he says, the word safe, to make sure that the Philippians put their confidence in Christ and not in the flesh. And even as I wrote this sermon, I felt like, you know, whenever I get the opportunity to preach, I end up saying pretty much the same things. But I also need, and we also need to apply God's words, Paul's words, to preach the same things to you as of no trouble to me, and safe for you. It's safe for us. We need to be on guard against false gospels. And we need to be on guard against distortions of the message of Jesus Christ. So with that caveat, Paul starts reviewing the same message. And he comes out swinging with very harsh words. Let's look at verse 2. Verse 2 says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Paul pulls no punches. He calls them unclean. He calls them dogs. He calls them evildoers. He calls them mutilators of the flesh. And, and these were fighting words. These were the people who thought that they were clean. It was the uncircumcised people, they thought, that were unclean. They were the ones who thought that they were obeying God. It was the uncircumcised who were not observing God the law of God. And it was they who believed that their flesh was righteous and they had righteousness on their side. Paul says that they were flesh mutilators. Paul is uncompromising in in his critique of this teaching. and Paul wants to send the message, these are not Christians. For Paul, the Philippians needed to know who they should listen to, and who they should regard as heretics. This was more important to Paul than being polite or finding common ground. These men were opponents of the gospel and not to be partnered with. Today we commonly uh, call this heresy or versions of this heresy legalism. Generally speaking, legalism is the belief that we earn God's favor through something we do or something that another person has done to us? Biblical Christianity is the belief that we receive God's favor and love through faith alone in the work of Jesus Christ alone. That's the gospel that Paul taught. That's the gospel that the Protestant ref- reformers taught from the scriptures. And today we still need to be on guard against legalism Whether, you know, whether we're willing to call legalists uh, dogs and evildoers, we regardless need to be ready to call legalism a distortion of the gospel, a heresy. This is difficult because I think Christians today often get confused about what is and isn't legalism. Sometimes uh, Christians think of legalism only in terms of strict Christians, who have strong convictions, you know, about things like alcohol or dating or used to be bowling. The thought is that legalists are people, are Christians who aren't fun, and they're very stern. There's a famous quote, uh, a writer talking about the Puritans, saying that Puritanism is, uh, to quote, the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. And that's often the picture in people's minds uh, when they think of legalists. But that's not always the case. It's not always easy to identify legalists based on their nature or how often they smile. Uh, you know, These uh, Judaizers, I have no idea if they were nice or not. They don't seem very nice to me. Um, but today, legalists are good nature. They're really nice, whether it's you know, teachers who teach that grace is received uh, through the performance of the sacraments or teach that obedience to God's word contributes to our salvation or teach that justification is on the basis of our faithfulness instead of uh, through faith alone or just teach, avoid teaching the cross altogether and teach people that Christianity is about trying your best and obeying God and then he'll reward you these are all distortions of the gospel. Legalists today can teach legalism and do so with a smile on their face. I fear that if the Judaizers were here today, you know, we would agree with them on a lot of things. I fear that if they were here today, we would call them brothers, we would play their music, invite them to our conferences, share their articles on Facebook, They might even teach at our seminaries. But Paul says that even if him or an angel from heaven, he says in Galatians, should preach a gospel contrary to the one delivered to the churches, he says let them be accursed. We need to have discernment and we need to renounce legalism and all other teaching that would threaten our confidence in Christ alone and our joy in him. May we guard ourselves from those who would distort the gospel. May we guard our confidence in Christ. It's not just about uh, false teachers. Paul wants the Philippians to have assurance that they can find joy in their confidence in Jesus. And that brings us to point two. Point two is put your confidence in Jesus. So we're to guard our confidence in Jesus and we're to put our confidence in Jesus. Uh, before tearing apart uh, the confidence of the flesh, Paul, in, in just a few words, this gives this description of a Christian as one who has confidence in Jesus Christ alone. And in, in, in fact, instead of confidence, Paul uses the word glory. We are to glory in Jesus Christ. Verse 3 says For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. This is a powerful description. And let's look at each part. First, Paul says that we are the circumcision, not just physically circumcised, as if being circumcised was enough to make you holy or clean. We need more than physical circumcision. We need spiritual cleaning. Paul says so in Romans chapter 2, verse 29. He says, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. Real circumcision is not something of the flesh, something of the heart. Something God does in our hearts through the Spirit, setting us apart as his people, holy and blameless before him. And Christians are the fulfillment of circumcision because of what God has done in our hearts. We are the circumcision. Next, because we are the circumcision, because God has circumcised our hearts by the Spirit, we may, it says in verse 3, worship by the Spirit of God. Worship by the Spirit of God. The word worship here, refers to spiritual service see man by nature is not worthy not fit to serve god but god has made us fit to serve him through our spirit by his holy spirit the author of hebrews says in uh, hebrews chapter 9 verse 13 to 14 he says For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, those are the sacrifices in the law. The author says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve, same word there as in uh, Philippians, to worship, to serve the living God. Our service to God cannot make us acceptable to him. God instead has to make us acceptable so that we can serve. So practically, whenever you serve God, whether it be praying for uh, another person, throwing out the garbage at church, giving money to the food bank, serving on the praise team. That's acceptable service to God, not because of you, not because of the flesh, but because of Christ's flesh that was offered up to forgive you of your sins, to reconcile you to God, and to make you a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him. And and that message is at the heart of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ is that Christ died for sinners. We deserved God's anger and his punishment and could not stand before his righteousness and perfection. And so Christ died on the cross in our place to take upon himself our sins so that we could be reconciled to him and in our thank- joy and thanksgiving live lives of service, worship to him, acceptable. Lives of worship. We worship by the Spirit and are the circumcision, and it says, therefore, it says that we have been made acceptable in God and we no longer boast in ourselves. Instead, the next part of Paul's description in verse 3 is that we glory in Christ Jesus. We glory in Christ Jesus confidence in, in christ is the end of any other kind of glory it's the end of any kind of boasting paul says in uh, ephesians chapter 2 verse 8 he says for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of god not a result of works, so that no one may boast boast same word glory For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Part of salvation is that we may no longer boast in anything but Jesus Christ. All other boasting has been pushed aside. We boast instead in Christ Jesus, our Savior, our God, our Redeemer, the living Savior. So, in light of all that, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit, glory in Christ Jesus. We therefore, it says, verse 3, put no confidence in the flesh. Put no confidence in the flesh. Of course, we don't. Why would we? What is there left to have confidence in besides Jesus? When you have Jesus, you have nothing, you, you need nothing else to boast in. You don't need anything else to glory in. Jesus is enough. So we've seen in this this one verse, Paul has provided a compelling picture of what it means to be a Christian. And that picture alone should compel us to put our confidence, to continue for the Christian, to put our confidence in Christ alone and to joyfully serve him and glory in him. Alas, Paul needs to add more. Paul doesn't uh, just want to make a positive case, he wants to destroy the confidence in the flesh. And so we go to point three. We are to, point one was guard our confidence in Christ. Point two was that we must put our confidence in Christ. And point three, we should reject confidence in the flesh. We must reject confidence in the flesh. Paul wants the Philippians to reject confidence in the flesh, and by flesh, Paul means a righteousness of your own based on the law, from the law. Specifically in this passage, it's a righteousness that comes from law, from circumcision. It's about legalism. And so to, to give them a clear picture of what this means, Paul provides, as an example, himself, as someone who has reason to have confidence in the flesh but rejects it for the sake of Christ. Verse 4 says, he's told them to put no confidence in the flesh, and he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone th- else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul's argument is that if anyone had a righteousness of their own that comes from the law, it would be him. His adherence to the law was unmatched since he was born into the people of Israel and continued in an uninterrupted manner to, uh, to follow the strictest of Jewish observances. He explains in verse 5. He says he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Paul calls, calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's a Jew of Jews. Because he descended from the people of Israel, he was circumcised on the eighth day as per God's instructions to Abraham. Abraham. Not only that he could identify as being part of one of the twelve tribes, according to the descendants his descendants uh, or his, uh, his predecessors of the tribe of Benjamin. And so in terms of adherence to the law, Paul had a head start. He was able to do far more than any other uh, anyone else. Not only that, but look at. Look at what he did. Look at what he did in verse uh, verse f- 4. He says, If anyone thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he says, As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law blameless. Paul wasn't just a Hebrew of Hebrews, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. From the first century Jewish perspective, he was as good as it gets. To be a Pharisee was, as Paul puts it when he testifies to King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26, to live according to the strictest party of our religion. This was the strictest approach to the law of Moses, so much so that they added additional traditions, trying to stop people from disobeying the law. These are the people who criticized Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. Paul wasn't just any old Pharisee. He was a zealous and devout Pharisee. Verse 6 says, As to zeal a persecutor of the church, Luke records for us in uh, Acts chapter 8 that uh, Saul, um, that's Paul's Hebrew name, was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. See, before his conversion, Paul was very active as a Pharisee on the campaign to rid the earth of Jesus' followers. He was not a backbencher Pharisee. Paul was in the trenches, fighting the enemy, as zealous and as enthusiastic as he could be. Not just zealous, but faithfully observant. It says in verse 6, As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, if you've read the New Testament, you know that Jesus and his disciples did not actually think that or believe that a Pharisee could be objectively blameless. Under the law, Jesus says that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus did acknowledge that from the outside, the Pharisees did a pretty good job. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus is at dinner at a Pharisee's house, and he fails to follow their rituals for cleaning before eating, and and it says, and the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup. And of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. And Jesus meant this literally and figuratively. These Pharisees literally cleansed cups and dishes, but they were also figuratively, outwardly clean. Likewise, in uh, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead man's, uh, dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So even Jesus admits that from the outside, the Pharisees observed the highest standards of human outward holiness and obedience. They were outwardly beautiful. And in verse 6, Paul says that he was as beautifully whitewashed as it got. He was the real deal. He was the Pharisee. Pharisees. But Paul says that ultimately he had nothing to gain from this kind of righteousness. In verse 7, it says, But whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. He considered his righteousness as nothing. Less than nothing. It was a loss and we'll talk more about this next week, but it was all lost because no merit or accomplishment of our own can reconcile us to Christ, can reconcile us to God. One commentator writes Man at his most privileged, his most moral, his most religious, his most zealous and devoted, is yet not thereby made fit and acceptable to God. An acceptable righteousness cannot be acquired through our works, even through the law of Moses. And Paul warns of trying to do this. In Galatians chapter 3, he says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. This is, the main, this is a main purpose of the law, to curse to condemn since no one loves God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and no one loves their neighbor as themselves and no one does everything written in the law we are all cursed if we attempt to earn God's favor through the law if anyone tells you that the message of Christianity is love God and love others they are at least very, very confused, that is the law and by itself it's very bad news. It condemns. If we attempt to be holy before God based on our works, we find ourselves unclean dogs and evildoers. We become idolaters, worshipers of our own self wrought righteousness. It's all loss. So Paul says that we are to In this passage, he has been telling us that we ought to reject any confidence in the flesh. We're to guard our confidence in Jesus. We're to put our confidence in Jesus. We're to reject confidence in the flesh. I'll leave you with three thoughts. Uh, First, if you're not a Christian, I want to ask you what your confidence is in. What are you putting your confidence in? Sunshine? Rain? Yourself? Whatever it is, unless it's Jesus, it's not enough. When you stand before Almighty God, your moral conduct, your kind thoughts, your prayers, nothing but Jesus can save you from the curse of God. Nothing but the free, bountiful grace of God can reconcile you to him and bring you eternal life. But that grace of God is being offered to you in God's word. So please, if you are not a Christian, talk to someone after the service, ask the welcome team um, at the back to give you a Bible, repent of your sins, and put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only true road to true joy. Second, to the Christian, what, the same question, what is your confidence in? Are you tempted to put your confidence in your attendance at church, how often you read the Bible, your prayer life? Of course, God calls us to do those things, but those should flow out of our confidence in Jesus, not replace Jesus as our confidence. They should be done in response to God's grace, not in effort to gain God's favor. I pray and hope that you will find rest in Jesus Christ and that from that will flow joyful service to God and to others. And third, um, again to Christians and and especially to those who teach, I plead to you to preach the gospel. Make a distinction between the law and the gospel specifically. And more specifically, as I said before, loving God and loving others is not the gospel. Loving God and loving others is not the message of Christianity. Loving God and loving others is the law. And if you tell someone that faith is easy, it's just about loving God, loving your neighbor, that's not good news. That's terrible news. It's an impossible burden to bear. That's the whole weight of the law without the Spirit working through the gospel, through the message of Jesus Christ, of what he has done, without that to produce repentance and faith, we cannot love God and love others. I think there are many evangelical preachers and and teachers who would swear that they aren't legalists, but their message is so devoid of the gospel and so full of well-meaning sometimes law that it is legalism. It's unbearable. It kills joy. I'm sure you've made that mistake. I've made that mistake. Every teacher has made that mistake before. And lucky for us, when we do make mistakes and when we do sin, we have an advocate before the Father. Our sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. But be careful, brothers and sisters, to preach the gospel tell people about our hope in Christ. That hope should bring us joy. Uh, My preaching up here should be a joyful response to the grace of Jesus Christ. When you wake up tomorrow and go to work or care for your family or do whatever God has given you to do, you could do so with joy, knowing that you are a beloved child of God with whom he is well pleased. Even when you encounter suffering to Reference Rogers and Hammerstein again when the dog bites, when the bee stings, when you're feeling sad, you have more than just nice things to think about and to hold on to. You have something more than confidence and confidence alone. We have the solid rock of Jesus Christ crucified and risen to put our confidence in. May that Savior. May his benefits be our favorite things. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the joy that is available to us in Christ Jesus. Thank you that it is based on the truth that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, died in our place, has risen as the firstborn from the dead. Thank you that That is our confidence that we have something real to believe in. We have something to glory in. We have a Savior to rejoice in. And even as we continue worship and singing, as we leave this place, may may you fill our hearts with joy. May we rejoice in the Lord, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.